0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Footprints. Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to the show tonight. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Tonight's show is about the African American homesteaders of the Great Plains. And my guest for tonight is Jacob Freefell. Jacob is a research fellow at the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska. He is also co-author of Homesteading the Plains Toward a New History, 2017. He is currently studying the history of black homesteaders in the Great Plains and his most recent co-authored article in the Great Plains Quarterly entitled African-American Homesteader Colonies in the Settling of the Great Plains and it explores the history of six black homesteader communities. So let me give just a warm welcome to Jacob Freefill. Welcome, Jacob.
2: Thank you, Bernice. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I am so happy to have you on the show because, as I mentioned to you before I even started the show tonight, that I am a descendant of a homesteader, not from the Great Plains but from the South. But I want you just to start off so that we have everyone on the same page. What is homesteading?
0: Well,
2: um, homesteading is really the culmination of an effort that had been going on during the 1850s the homestead act is passed in 18 and signed in 1862 by abraham lincoln Um, but during the 1850s whigs and free soilers and then republicans have been trying to pass legislation to give away free land um to settlers in the, the midwest what we now know as the midwest and the great plains west um And with the South seceding from the union, they had always blocked this legislation. With the South seceding from the union, the Republicans finally could pass um, the Homestead Act, which gave settlers for a small processing fee up to 160 acres of land if they made improvements on the land. So built fences, grew crops that need to survive, uh, built a home. So they built improvements on the land and lived on it for five years. And the supplemental laws over time decrease the amount of time on the land to three years and increase the acreage depending on where you were living. And so this was passed in 1862, and there's an opportunity for um, white and black Americans once the 14th Amendment was passed uh, to uh, gain land on the Great Plains and in the West. And the
1: South, as you mentioned. I don't want to leave the Southern Homestead act out. Yes. So we know that it was passed. We know that African-Americans as well as others could apply for this land. So tell us, you know, about your research. What what is the focus of your current project since we know that it's about the Great Plains?
2: Yeah, so um, we're focusing on black homesteaders in the Great Plains, particularly in eight states, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, the Dakotas, Montana, New Mexico, and Wyoming. Um, and thousands of black Americans moved in the Great Plains after the Civil War in order to homestead. And this has a, a, been a little-known history, mostly forgotten history, aside from by the ancestors a lot of the times. And a lot of the, cr- the credit for this project goes to the National Park Service, um, particularly the folks at the Homestead National Monument in Beatrice, Nebraska, Uh, They really wanted to tell a more accurate and diverse homestead story to the public, and so they approached us because of uh, the book my co-authors and I wrote. They approached us here at the Center for Great Plains Studies um, about possibly doing some research on on black homesteaders. And so we're, of course, studying African-American homesteaders broadly in the Great Plains, and we've developed a database of over 650 African-American homesteaders that we've found. But we've particularly focused on the history of six black homesteader communities um nicodemus kansas which there's a historic site in nicodemus there you can visit it Um, deerfield colorado dewittie nebraska empire wyoming blackton new mexico and sully county south dakota the last community we uh, studied so we're researching and writing about life in those communities we're helping the national park service build a web archive on their site that unites the history of these homesteader sites. So we're providing them with maps of where the homesteads were, images of uh, prominent homesteaders in those communities, as well as um, text about what life is like in those communities so folks can, will be able to go onto their site and get a sense of what African Americans face while homesteading on the plains. Um, and we're also working on building historical markers that commemorate two of the sites, the one in Wyoming and South Dakota, and we're in the midst of that right now. Um, So this project is really about making this important rural black homesteader history visible uh, for both historians and the general public at large.
1: Well, now, you mentioned all of these communities, but how did you choose the six black homesteader communities to study them?
2: So they were the most prominent and longest-lived uh, Black homesteader communities in their states, um, and so we we found out about um, Nicodemus, Kansas, because it was sort of a well a well-known site, right? It's affiliated with the National Park Service. It's um, got the site down there. We we visited Nicodemus. Um, we we've my colleague uh, Michael Ekstrom met with descendants from DeWitty, Nebraska, and was able to really get to know the history of DeWitty. Um, There's some great folks at um, the University of Northern Colorado working on Deerfield, Colorado, and they really helped us get plugged into Deerfield as this major uh, African-American homesteader site in Colorado. Um, South Dakota, Sully County is the only homesteader site we know of in South Dakota, Um, so uh, it's... It's both the longest-lived and um, the only one we really know of right now. Um, And then Blackton, New Mexico, uh, is another prominent site, a black homesteader site. Timothy Nelson wrote a great dissertation on it, and that's how we learned about that one. And it's, again, one of the most prominent sites in New Mexico. So they're the longest-lived and most prominent sites in their states. And so we thought they were good choices to to look into the, the life of black homesteaders in the Plains.
1: Now, when you mention these communities, I mean I'm really curious about the population back in the time when these communities are uh, uh, started. Do you have any idea how many homesteaders we're looking at? And let's say Blackton, or Nicodemus, a a Deerfield, a Sully County. Um, yeah, Nicodemus by 1899.
2: So Nicodemus was founded in 1877. By 1899, Nicodemus had received 88 homestead patents, making them o- owners of over 13,000 acres of land. In um, Deerfield, Colorado, the population by 1917 to 1921 got up to as many as uh, 300 people. Um, and they estimated in 1918 their harvest to be worth uh, $50,000, which is a huge take during the during that period, um, So we're, ta- we're not talking about insignificant communities. Empire was a little bit smaller. Um, Empire only had about nine or ten homesteaders and the large families there, though. So the community might have been as large as 66 people. Um, and the Empire community is interesting, too, because it's, they have homesteaders who, after they left Empire, went to DeWitty, Nebraska, uh, as well as um, Sully County, South Dakota. And so these were, were not small communities. Um, they, were, they were larger. Often, a, a, and, and when we think of communities, I, I don't want people to think of necessarily towns. Because if you go to the Nicodemus National Historic Site, you have the town site there. And there are a lot of buildings like the, the uh, AME Church. In Deerfield, there was the lunchroom. These cultural buildings that really knit the communities together, these, when you think of 300 people at Deerfield, or 89 homesteaders living in uh, Nicodemus. These are people living on 160 acres of land, um, sometimes 640 acres of land, if we're talking about DeWitty, Nebraska. So they're they're not necessarily very close to each other, but they're still building these community buildings. These are rural neighborhoods more than towns that we're talking about, um, with thousands of acres of land being claimed by black Americans uh, in the plains at each of these communities.
1: Well, you know, that's very interesting. Now, I know each of these communities have, have some kind of history, and I want to know where did the people come from to settle in these communities? Give us some background about the history of the six sites that you're studying. What's similar and what are the differences between the sites?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so for the most part, and I, I, I
2: want to – I'm tempted to make general statements, but I mean, we're always, like, every day we're adding enough, more homesteaders, but uh, as of our recent count, um, a majority of our homesteaders came from the upper south, those so states like Kentucky, Tennessee, um, border states like Missouri as well. And it's sometimes tough to track this, and so we have the information from the census, so we know where they were born. Um, sometimes we can figure out where they went after they left the Upper South, a lot of our homesteaders spent some time in the Midwest before coming to the Great Plains. Um, the, for example, there's this one gentleman, uh, Henry Cooper, who was lived enslaved in Kentucky, and around the age of twelve, he was given as a gift by his owner to the owner's son-in-law, and in, in Missouri, and so from Missouri, he's. Went out to the Union Army to fight in the Civil War, at which point over time he's emancipated and we lose track of him in the historic record for a while. But then he pops up again in the 1880s, homesteading in Wyoming. So we're not exactly sure where he spent those interim years. We know he was born in Kentucky, spent some time in Missouri, um, and then fought in the war. It's unclear where he ended up in the, in the meantime. So sometimes difficult to tell where these folks are coming from unless there's a diary, or you can track their military records as well if they stayed in the military after the war. Um, but most of our folks were born in the Upper South. Um, the next largest area where um, our black homesteaders were born was the the Lower South. So we're thinking Mississippi, um, Alabama, Georgia, places like that. And there might be fewer people from there because they had chances like your ancestor. To perhaps just move one state over in homestead in Louisiana, um, or the one of the southern public land states. I mean, Alabama and Mississippi were both southern public land states, so for a time people could claim homesteads in those states. So that might be a reason why there aren't as many homesteaders in the Great Plains in our in our group, at least. Um, then the next biggest group after that are the Midwest and Great Plains. A lot of those Great Plains people are folks who are second generation, people who are descendants of African-American homesteaders who came from the Upper South. Um, so that's where most of them are coming from. Uh, our six sites, for the most part, are founded between the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and they lasted until the 1920s or 30s. So Nicodemus, um, founded in 1877, like I already said, it, it's still there. There are people living on the site. Um, the town itself declined around 1888, but that rural neighborhood we were discussing, the homesteaders, those 89 patents, um, they persisted beyond that. Um, Sully County, South Dakota, founded in 1882, in the it went on until the 1920s. But there are some descendants still in that area, still farming the land and ranching land in that area. So um, the, the larger community isn't there, but there are still descendants. Of the original settlers there. Empire, Wyoming lasted from about 1908 to 1920. DeWitty, Nebraska. People started settling, and this is in western Nebraska, 1904 to 1907, and it lasted until about 1936. Uh, Blackdom was founded in 1909 and lasted until the 1920s, and Deerfield from about 1911 to 1921. You notice they're all, all these places are. Going under or people are moving out of them Around the time Mm -hmm. of the Dust Bowl um, Which is Mirrors many white communities In a lot of ways And they shared a a lot in common with white homesteaders Um, This is an American story There's A lot of That unites white and black homesteaders On the plains They both came to the plains to get land To better themselves and their children's future Um, They did well during the wet years When they're getting rain especially in those drier areas, um, western Nebraska, not wet. I I encountered one homesteader who – this is a white homesteader – who moved to western Nebraska from Maine, where the rain differential was huge. He ended up selling his homestead almost immediately after getting patent. So during the dry years, um, both white and black homesteaders failed equally. Um, Some towns were organized as for-profit enterprises. Uh, Do you want to ask a question?
1: Well, you have some comments coming from the chat room, and one of the questions uh, out of the chat room is, what would be the difference in homesteading in the Northwest Ordnance Territory and the Great Plains? That is the timeline. For, so we're, are we thinking about Old Northwest? I'm, Midwest, I'm reading Northwest. the comment from the, from the, the chatter.
2: Okay. So I'll just I'll, let's just go through the timeline of homesteading. So the Homestead Homestead Act is passed in about eighteen it's passed in eighteen sixty two. Homesteaders start homesteading in eighteen sixty three. The first homestead is filed on in Nebraska, and but the but the old Northwest of Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, um, Wisconsin, what we think of the Midwest now is there's you can homestead there as well. The problem with that is there's only about there's not much land open for homesteading because in the 1850s, the government graduated the prices of all that land and reduced it based on how long it had been on the market. So it became very cheap. They'd been on the market for 30 years. It dropped all the way down to 12 cents an acre. So most of that land had been bought up by cash sales. Um, Nebraska, the peak homesteading years were in, about 1880 to about 1900 1910 the dakotas you see more homesteading in the 1920s and so as we move west then um you see more homesteading in the 1920s to the 1940s and um then alaska opened up for homesteading as well so i hope that gives a good answer like there's not much in that what we call the midwest now um the very few homesteads on um, those western territories are homesteaded much later than the Great Plains. And the last homestead is filed in
1: Alaska in 1974. Well, you have two descendants of homesteaders in the chat room. Uh, Family Tree Girl is stating that her family was the first uh, black family to homestead in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then we have another person stating that her family is from DeWitty by way of Canada as the core of the DeWitty settlers were.
2: Oh, oh I, she, she's, I might have talked to my colleague, Michael Ekstrom. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I would love to get in contact with um, both of you. I and mean, Of course, DeWitty, but Grand Rapids is an interesting story, too, because as I just said, I just don't I don't encounter many Michigan home uh, homesteaders. Uh, a lot of that land is sold in the cash sale. Uh, and okay. I, I don't know if my the link to the project is in on yes, the, page. the
1: link to the project the link to the project is available to everyone plus your email address.
2: Yeah. So contact me directly so,
1: at my email or there's a form available on the project
2: page um to fill out information about your um African-American homesteading past, and then I can contact you through that as well. Or you can do both. Um, But please reach out. I really am interested in hearing your story.
1: Okay. Now I want you to just stop for a minute and tell people, because they can see the images that you sent to me that are just scrolling on the screen. Tell them what those images are.
2: all right let me let me open the uh don't worry about just just tell us
1: what you put up there they they they'll get it
2: (laughs) all right so i believe i sent you um an image of the schoolhouse at nicodemus which is that white building school district number one and that was the the first school district and first schoolhouse in graham county kansas so um it's not just it's not just the first Nicodemus school. It's the, the first school, and it sort of highlights the importance of education the black homesteader community.
0: Um,
2: the image of the, the gentleman with, um, who's, who's in his Sunday best, because um, it's near graduation time for him, is Russell Taylor. Um, Russell Taylor was a minister at um, the Empire Wyoming site, um, he went to get his degree at Bellevue College in near Omaha, Nebraska, and that's where that photo is from, his time there, from the archives at Hastings College. And um, he was the intellectual and um, leader of that community. Um, and that's the gentleman in the, in the wooden chair, the you get, a fuller picture of him in sort of his three piece suit. Um, his story is a little bit tragic in some ways uh, at the empire site. He was the leader of the community, sort of kept the community together. He was the teacher there and with, as a, someone with a degree and he might've had a graduate degree as well. He was probably the most educated person in Goshen County at the time um, that the empire settlement was around. And, but his brother, Baseman Taylor um, if something was going on with them and they wanted to, to get him some help and possibly commit him um, to some sort of mental institution. They were concerned about his well-being and safety and so they called the Goshen County Sheriff to to bring him and in the Sheriff's custody Baseman Taylor was um, abused. I use the word tortured and he, he died in the Goshen County Sheriff's custody. Um, for, and that's one of the things along with the dry the dryness of the the weather and the climate at the time. Um, this sort of obsessed, as you can imagine. Um, Russell Taylor, uh, who he sort of focused on getting justice for his brother. No one was ever charged. No one was ever um, committed of any crime in the matter. Um, while Russell Taylor was distracted with this issue, the community sort of fell apart. And um, this is sort of the one really stark case of. Of violence of racial violence that we find in these colonies but Russell Taylor was the backbone of that empire community um, the other gentleman sitting in the chair was John Magruder who was the founder of the, the Magruder family in the Sully County colony still descendants of that family in the area um, he came to Sully County uh, he didn't homestead himself he purchased land from one of the prominent homesteaders in the area and then his descendants, his, well, his, after he died, his wife homesteaded, uh, Ellen Magruder, and his um, son homesteaded as well. So they started building their, their land empire in that area, um, which is still farmed on and ranched on to this day. The other image of the folks standing outside of their, their old homestead, that is an image of early Nicodemus settlers, don't have names for them. Um, Angela Bates, the Nicodemus Historical Society, might be able to help me with that. Um, but we don't have names for those folks, but they're standing in front of their homestead. And this is, I think it's important to see if people are dressed in their Sunday best, right? These, this, they're trying to portray themselves. as they're, they're, they're enjoying life out there, right? We sometimes think of homesteaders as miserable, slogging through their, their hard farming work. But they're joyful and building lives out there. There's another photo uh, of the Jubilee Singers. who um, fa- They're family members from the Jubilee Singers in DeWitty, as well as Empire. And there's a really playful photo in the Nebraska State Archives. And you can I think you can access this online. A playful photo of them smiling there, taking a picture as they're at one of the, the places they're going to perform um, and sing. Um, I believe there's one more photo here. And that is the Deerfield Lunchroom, a photo I took last year. There are still buildings left in Deerfield, Colorado. Um, that's one of them. As you can see, it's behind a chain-link fence. Um, a stark picture, right, with the, the commemorative monument in front of this building that's fallen in on itself. And, and I'm concerned about Deerfield because not only is... The lunchroom is in sort of disrepair. But some of the other buildings are on land owned by a company called Clayton Homes, and they're planning on building on this land. Um, Recently, a reporter did a story on how Clayton Homes might be destroying some old Deerfield buildings, and they've since backed off and said they want to have a conversation about how to preserve the buildings. But Deerfield's in real danger of disappearing, and I think this photo really um, generates that feeling that um, Deerfield is in trouble. And and we're at a point with a lot of the buildings that are left at these communities where the public has to do something to preserve them or else they're going to be lost to us. And as far as I know, the only places there are are actual buildings left are Nicodemus, which the national park service owns some of those buildings and they could be doing a better job preserving them. Um, and then Deerfield, where some of them are in disrepair and others are in, in danger of just being swept away for new development. Um, and so I, I hate to end the, end the photo tour on a down note, but um,
0: <laughs>
2: that's what I've shared with you. But I think there's, the actual physical structures are, impo- are important along with the stories. It really shows us how, how the folks lived and uh, where they lived.
1: Right, and it's important information to share with people just to get the word out, first of all, that you all have a project where you are looking for the uh, black homesteaders. So we're going to take just a quick break and come back, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the homestead records, where people can find them, and just additional information about ancestors that you may have con- come in contact with. Quick break. back to Ancestors Footprints This is your host Bernice Alexander Bennett And I'm just so happy that you're here today To hear about black homesteaders and the Great Plains Now all of my shows are available as a podcast And they can be downloaded immediately after the broadcast On Blog Talk Radio, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. You have been listening to Jacob Freefell and he is a research fellow at the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska. So, Jacob, let's go back and talk a little bit about the homestead records, because you're gathering information on uh, individuals. And I want to know more. Also, we have a comment that uh, Henry Blakey was a homesteader in Yangston, South Dakota. Glad go ahead, go ahead to hear that. Do you know anything about Allenworth, California, as a black settlement?
2: No, we haven't looked at California much. But I've actually – it's funny you mention that because someone working on homesteading in general in California contacted me recently um, about the project. Um, Alan, there, so, is, do we think there's a black homesteader site in Allenworth, California?
1: I'm just going by what someone has just posted.
2: <laughs> All right. I'm interested. So in we it. may <laughs> have to get some <laughs> yeah.
1: additional information. Perhaps they will contact mm-hmm. you um, yeah. to, to share more information. But anyway, let's go on to talk about some of the records and what you can find in the homestead records and what you have found as you have pulled documents to support uh, the, in, the names of the individuals who've homesteaded in the various communities.
2: Yeah, so, well, first of
1: all, I, I
2: sort of want to take on a tour of how, how we got to the, the, the homestead, the, the black homesteaders begin with, because they're in the homestead records you will find no box, that says what race the homesteader was. Sometimes a land agent would mention offhanded in the margins that it was a a black homesteader. Otherwise it's very difficult to discern uh, if you're looking at the file of a black or white homesteader. So when we weren't working off of the work of other historians who had looked at the history of black towns in the Great Plains, and there's usually homesteaders around those towns, um, we had to cross-reference census records. So, for example, in Nebraska in 1880, we looked at all the blackheads of household, and then we entered their names into the Bureau of Land Management website. And if you, if you just want to search for your family um, in homestead records, you can go to um, the Bureau of Land Management website. If you Google BLM documents, that will take you to where you want to be. Um, and you can just search under name and state and see if your ancestor homesteaded in, in the state or they own, own land. Um, and so that's what we did for all the black heads of household in, in our states for three different censuses. And that led us sometimes to a dead end. So if someone's named John Smith, it's not going to be very clear if that's the black homesteader or a white homesteader by the same name. But we found that's how we found about 300 or so of our 650 black homesteaders. So once we know the name, we can get to the homestead file. And the homestead files are incredible. Um, you can get to them at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Um, also, the homesteading files for six or seven states are in Ancestry.com if you have the subscription. Um, if you search their card catalog for homesteader or homesteading records or homesteaders, um, the homesteading records 1863. 1908 will come up and so those states are the states that come up are complete in there for those years unfortunately right there's a lot of homesteading that happened after 1908 but it's something if you need to access those years online for those particular states um, otherwise you have the national archives in the homestead records you can see the date your ancestor claimed their homestead so what would happen is Someone would go to their local land office when they got to a new place. They would pick a plot of land um, based on a map of where they want to claim their 160 acres. And so they put down the processing fee, claim the land, and then they go off to, to Homestead. And so they go off, they build their sod house. So uh, usually start with a dugout, uh, literally a house dug into the, a hill. Um there's a story of when some of the first settlers arrived or really the, the, second group of settlers arrived at Nicodemus. One one man pointed to a smoke coming out of the ground, one of these dugouts said, there's Nicodemus. And his wife said, where's Nicodemus? <laughs> said, there in the ground. <laughs> and she just wept. <laughs> so sometimes living early on in a, a hill, a dugout carved inside of a hill, usually build a sod house, house cut from ground, because if you've never been to the Great Plains, not a lot of trees here, even though we're the home of Arbor Day here in Nebraska. Um, not a whole lot of vertical relief, so you need to find something other than a lumber to build your house out of, unless you're really wealthy. So you, you build your house, you plant your corn, you go back to the land office after five years to prove up or gain actual title to your homestead. In order to prove up, you need to call three witnesses to say that you're going to – or you need to list three witnesses and call two of them usually to say that, yeah, he or she has been on their land, and they've made improvements on the land. They've been there for five years, and they haven't left um, to go do anything else. So you go there. Your witnesses put down. That you're, You've been there, but this is, these witness statements are where the good stuff is because they write down what their names are, what, what the, your ancestors' information will be there. They'll ask what have they built on their land, so you'll be able to see that the, the witness says that your ancestor built a sod house, three corn cribs, a barn, a stable. that They have run 100 head of hogs on the land. They planted rows of corn, often planted fruit trees, depending on where you are. Um, and so these documents are just chock full of this information. And, and sometimes you, you run across um, some heartbreaking stories uh, where some, someone in the family has, has passed away while they're homesteading or has had to leave their claim to go get medical help for their child who's come down with scarlet fever in the middle of the plains, you're not going to be able to just treat that on your own. And so you can can get a a very intimate glimpse into your ancestor's life through their homestead records that they've claimed. And then not only do the witnesses put down what your ancestor has built, but your ancestor also has filled out testimony on what they've built on their land, how long they've been there, how old they are at the time they're proving up, how many people they're living with, usually family, sometimes um, boarders, sometimes the homesteader, um, when they file, they they file, I am a married man. By the time they prove up, they're a divorced man. Uh, You can get these very intimate looks into your ancestors' lives. And through the homestead record is how I found that story about Henry Cooper, who had been given as a gift when he was enslaved to his owner's son-in-law. I'm looking through the Homestead record, and there is a document in there that says he was in the Union Army. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. I can go check out from from there. I can go check out where he was in the Union Army because his regiment is listed there. I have his name. So I go into the military records from the Homestead records, and then from the military records, I find out that, wait, he was went to the Union Army from his owner in Missouri, Who and then there's a, a sort of messily written sheet that he was given as a gift from his original owner in Kentucky. And so just by going into the Homestead record, finding the Union Army record, I'm able to piece together Henry Cooper's life. And the Union Army record is important to the Homestead records because – Let's say Henry Cooper served three years in the Army, that means you could apply that time to his homestead to prove up So he only had to spend two years on his land before he got titled to it rather than the full five because he served the three years in the Army. And so there's just a lot of stuff you can find in these homestead records. And I, I remember when I first started looking at these, I was sort of suspicious about what was going to be in them. i I what, because when you open it to begin with, it's just, it just looks like a bureaucratic forum, right? We, we didn't invent bureaucracy. The United States has been at it since the beginning. Um, but then you get
1: into the witness statements, and that's, that's where the gold is. You are so right, and I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. Uh and I can tell you how it feels to to open one of those records. We have Family Tree girl, and she's talking about her family members and what was in the homestead record and They said they planted a thousand strawberries they had a house with one door, two windows, and a barn and so <laughs> It is just wonderful when you can look at those records and see a description of the land to see what they've done with the land, to see, as you mentioned, the number of people that were in the dwelling, uh, and also to have those wonderful witnesses of which you can then follow up to find out more about those witnesses that could have also been homesteaders. So the, the record is just amazing. Now, did you get all of those records from the National Archives, or were they somewhere else?
2: So um, a lot of the records we get are the, the ones from 1863 to 1908 that we can find on um, Ancestry, because the full record is on there, for the, for just for those years, though. So once we're beyond 1908, we have to go to the National Archives. And um, Bless my uh, colleague Michael, uh, who has been taking a, who's taken a couple trips out there. I know Washington D.C. is a lovely place, but it's, it's a lot to travel out there. And he's been spending hours scanning um, homestead records for, for the project, and so we can share those with the National Park Service eventually for that archive I was talking about. So people will be able to go on and look at the community in Sully County, South Dakota, and then look at actual homestead records from that community. And see those witness statements, so it's I, we've, we've gotten a lot of them from ancestry, but probably over a hundred and thirty we've scanned from the National Archives so far Mhm
1: so and all, how many records do you have
2: oh, that's a good question.
1: Um, I would guess that right now we probably have
2: between 200 and 250 records, we definitely have probably the largest um, archive of Homestead records that are high-quality scans outside of the National Archives, at least,
3: oh, if not the next wonderful. highest from the
2: National archives. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure there's some historian listening that's like, wait, no,
1: I have the largest archives,
2: but – we're up there.
1: Well, just just to know that there's a place where you have that large number of African-American homestead records, that's, that's wonderful to hear. Now, have you been in touch with ancestors of the homesteaders that you've studied?
2: Uh, yes, and like I said, uh, my colleague has been in contact with folks from DeWitty. He started working at, uh, on an article on DeWitty, which he wrote for the Great Plains Quarterly as well, um, and he was working with Doody um, descendants on that. I have made several trips up to Sully County, South Dakota, and we're working on building a, a historic marker up there to commemorate that community because there's, well, I thought there, was, there were no buildings left from the homesteading era, but my last trip up there when I met the sons of one of the descendants, he had the original house that was built by John Magruder the guy whose photo I was telling you about, he had that moved onto his property. So now that's wow. sitting there. So that was good to get photos of because that can go in that um, National Parks um, archive with the documents as well. So it, it's just really good to talk to the ancestors, you see, it, the descendants, because you find out things that... Like, I, there's only so much I can find out by going through Homestead Records. But to find out what these stories mean to descendants... The,
0: the,
2: the history that's passed through families that doesn't appear in records. It, it's so important to, to the overall story. And so I've talked with um, the descendants of the Magruder family up up in South Dakota, and they've shown me so much. Even though when I got out of the truck to look at the old house, I was told maybe a little bit late that, that there's a rattlesnake nest under there, so be careful. So I I just, I jumped back a bit before taking my photos. Um, but, uh, I I really enjoy talking to the the Magruder family. And if if any of them are listening, I really appreciate everything they've shared with me. And, um, but they're, and they're helping me craft the language for the historic marker in South Dakota as well. They, I've written some language for it. I've sent it to them. They're looking at it. And we'll go back and forth on what the best language is to tell their story. Um, and it's just so tell a very important us, part. how
1: are you going about uh obtaining these historical markers because i really like that idea of identifying these communities and we don't want them lost you know and putting up yeah. a marker does make a lot of sense but how are you going about uh providing the documentation to get these markers um get the support for these markets to be placed in these various communities?
2: Yeah, so most marker programs are, I mean, they're fairly straightforward with a bunch of bureaucracy in between. So you fill an application and you know where you want to put it, you know where the site was, or you have some other place. The South Dakota one might go at the county courthouse. I'm talking to the descendants about that. Um, and so you get your site, you get your documentation. Usually you need to make photocopies of any documents about the history, um, any photographs you have about it. Um, you just need to, to write. Usually it's short, usually only about 200 words about the site that you're trying to commemorate. And then that all goes into the application. And then you submit the application and you'll usually need to get a permit to encroach upon the land you want to build on. So it's all these um, documents. You'll find this on this Whatever state the site is in, you'll find it on their website, the, the uh, State Historical Society website usually, or the State Historic Preservation Office, one of those two. Um, so you'll find all of this documentation up there. You fill out the application, and then it goes to them. Um, and usually, so there's, there's going to be a price to put up the marker, but a lot of states have grant programs where you can get help to pay for that. Uh, we were given a generous grant by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, their African American Heritage Cultural Action Fund. Part of the grant is helping us to build these markers. And the other part is helping us work with the National Park Service on uniting the history of those six communities on their website. So it's really through the state's Historical Preservation Office, get the documentation online, and then um, talking to them about what sort of financial help I think is important too, because like everything, it costs it costs some money. But it's, I, I think it, it is important to I, – I, I don't want to undersell the importance of putting these markers up. I mean, especially at the South Dakota site when there's not much left and putting it at that courthouse will let people know that these folks are part of their this American story in Sully County. Um, in DeWitty, there's a marker. Uh, there, that was erected oh, I want to say seven to eight years ago. I could be underselling that. It might be closer to 10 to 15. Um, Blackdom has a marker, but Deerfield has a marker, but there are buildings there that we can still save. I think we should also concentrate on, on preserving what's left there as well. Um, it's, it's important. And I think we should all, another thing we can do is concentrate on getting the rest of these homestead records digitized. Um, the National Archives, was doing a good job, and now I think they've shut down the program for a while um, so I don't know if a congressman is the per- person to call about that, but we need to get that going again too. There's a lot we can do to oh
1: absolutely, absolutely. now, how can we get the the word out i mean i of course you hear you on this show, but we want to know about those stories from the descendants of the homesteaders. So what are you doing with your project to get the word out so that the descendants can come forward and tell you their stories? Yeah, we've been trying to get out in the media as much as possible. And that's, I was really happy to
2: hear, hear from you because I, we're, we, we've just finished up with the large research portion of the project. And so now, now we're really in this pivot mode to really trying to get out and, and get in touch with a lot more descendants. And so, some descendants have contacted us. And um, have wondered about contributing to the project, but not they don't know many stories about their history, which is good. I've contacted other descendants who have been standoffish, which I understand. Someone calls you and is asking about your family history. You don't know what they're up to. Um, and then other descendants, have, have, I've gotten to know them, and we've, um, and we've talked. So really, we're, we're trying to get out in media as much as possible. Um, hopefully, people will see the story about stories about Deerfield and it's in danger and that will make sense when to come out and say wait this this history this part of the, our, our shared american heritage is in danger of in Deerfield's case of being wiped from the earth but the stories aren't aren't told like they should be and um, i i mean we're, we're, our project wants to help tell those stories i mean i, I don't th- i don't consider it really gathering the stories as much as helping descendants tell their story, their family story, and that's that's what we're looking to do. So I think I think we're at that pivot point where we're really looking to get out and, and get to descendants more and more.
1: Right, and you know I have there's a comment in the in the chat room that they never heard about the program. Uh, other places would be to reach out to the if there are African American genealogy groups out in those various communities and the churches and what have you, just to get the word out that you're looking for those descendants.
2: I agree. Uh, that is that is a yeah, great advice. I mean, I, and I I'm, I should have thought about that already. Um, I've worked on other public history projects where we've gone gone out to churches, and I think um, we're in that mode now. I think I'm unencumbered by the the research portion of it. I'm really looking forward, I think, to getting out into the community. I've enjoyed my time up in South Dakota so much with with the Magruder's, and we would love to reach out to homesteaders, and not just of our six communities. descendants of black homesteaders everywhere as well. I mean, I think an outreach effort we'd be making would be towards these six communities, but we are interested in this, this story in the Great Plains and beyond of African American homesteading, um, so I think you're well, completely a right. And you need to get here: and They
1: want to know, do you have a Facebook page? Um, I have a Facebook
2: page. Um, the Center, of, uh, the Center for Great Plains Studies,
1: has one as well. Because they'd like to, you know, perhaps not. that's a way of getting people to to at least go in and tell their story or, or say something, you know, the project yeah. page. Uh, the, how can they how can they get in there and start sharing their stories? Because I mean, as as genealogists, that's what we're all about telling this story. Yeah. Now I have so, a, a caller that's calling in. Let's see, caller, do you have a question or a comment? Area code 4.3, question or comment?
3: Uh, yes, I do have a question or comment. First of all, a uh, fascinating program. And um, uh, is it Dr. Freefeld or Freifeld?
2: Freefeld. though so there's a debate in my family
3: about that, but we can't, we can't get into that right now. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, well, you just used the word the Great Plains and beyond. I'm calling from uh, Lethbridge, Alberta in Canada which is the uh, province directly north of Montana. And um, uh, if you have a moment, uh, I, I don't know if you've, in your research, uh, if so far, if you've come across the name of a gentleman, a black gentleman by the name of John Ware, W-A-R-E. Do you know anything about him?
2: That sounds familiar to me. I, I can, if you can get well, me well, your contact me just info, you, maybe email me. or.
3: yeah i will i see that you've got got some information uh there on contacting you and and i will do that i'll just give you a very quick um just for the other listeners just a very quick uh, little uh thumbnail about this gentleman uh he had uh, he was involved uh, in some form or another in the um in the civil war and uh he probably did a cattle drive similar to what we see in the um the uh, movie um, Lonesome Dove and so he ended up in Montana and then crossed the line into uh, Alberta uh, and he actually, he was quite the cowpuncher. puncher, he did work on my um, grandparents ranch in the uh, Alberta foothills and um, at that time there were no uh, uh, black women in western Canada at least not in this area at all and for a number of years, he was a bachelor. Finally, um, I think a lawyer, uh, a black lawyer, ha- moved out from Toronto to Calgary. And, um, and uh, he had some daughters. So this gentleman was able to find himself a wife. And eventually, uh, he homesteaded um, out uh, on the prairies. Uh, not in the foot he was he was a cowpuncher working in the foothills uh, uh, for lots of different ranchers, not just my grandparents. But um, anyway, uh, he became very famous in Alberta and uh, was a beloved figure uh, to to all of the uh, the people here. And in fact, uh, if any of the listeners you just type in his name, John Ware, there's even songs about him, folk songs and country songs about him and uh one other very quick quip his daughters uh he had several daughters and they lived in a small town uh, north of the city of lethbridge about a an hour's drive in those days when i was a little boy i think they would have had to come into shop by train but uh, i still remember being a little boy of six or seven and downtown uh, with my mother and of course as I said there were no black people to speak of in this part of the world yet so of course uh, <laughs> as a little boy the first time I saw there were these tall uh, uh, elegant uh, black women I, I would stare and uh, of course mother would say uh, she would uh, correct me and say it's not it's not it's rude to stare but uh, anyway a great part of our uh, of our folk history here in Alberta and it may be something that uh, the listeners would be interested in uh, finding more about it. Just a great story to uh, to read about this man.
2: Yeah, and I don't think most people realize that Canada had a law similar to the Homestead Act, um, where people could claim land in their parents. Exactly.
3: Yes, exactly. Uh, both of my grandparents are the same. They moved out. Uh, one of them came from, uh, from Copenhagen, and the other came from Nova Scotia. Uh, uh my my mother and father's uh, parents, and they they were able to get um, you know land for cheap uh, out on the great plains as well so so thank you very much for taking my call, I'm going to mute myself again and uh, just listen to the rest of the program. Uh, very fascinating and uh, I will uh, uh look for your email address in the comments below, and uh, maybe I can send you uh, send you an email uh, at a future time, doctor. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for calling. Okay, I really it. Thank yeah. you. Thank
1: you. Okay. We also have a question in the chat room. Uh, have you worked with the University of Northern Colorado and the University of Colorado and Boulder, uh, African American Studies Department? There's a question they would like to know if you reached out to them.
2: We have not worked with Boulder, but uh, we have worked with the University of Northern Colorado. And in fact, George June has been one of the, the, uh, George June is along along with um, Dr. Brunswick over there, um, an archaeologist, and Dr. June is in the African Studies Department. Uh, They've spearheaded the Deerfield effort in saving Deerfield and um, telling its story. And actually, uh, Dr. June was just at the University of Nebraska with us. We were having a little conference looking over um, some stuff we'd written. Um, And so, yes, we've been working with the University of Northern Colorado, and they are doing great work over there with Deerfield, um, and very important work.
1: Okay. Well, just in case people are interested in learning more about the project, tell them what they should do so that we could make certain that they get in contact with you. Oh, and it looks like we have another question. We have another caller. Hold on.
4: Okay, caller 434. It's Shelby, Bernice. I just <laughs> I just wanted to clarify. That was Benzee County and Manistee County, Michigan, not Grand Rapids. I just wanted oh, to say Which counties the were they? Sorry. Yeah, Benzee, B as in boy, Z County and Manistee okay. County. Yes, the oh, Davidson settled in Benzee about 1863, got their homestead five years later. So they were, you know, when the war was still going on, and then mm-hmm. the Marshes settled in Manistee County, Michigan. Uh, they put their application in 1867, and so far we have not found any other people of color that have homesteaded. So I'm not saying they weren't there, but they weren't homesteading. So this is up yeah. in the, I... up in the, you know, up in the glove on the left-hand side, the west side.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there A lot of Michigan was yeah, purchased by in the cash sale regime already, so they, you have to homestead in the glove.
0: <laughs>
4: yes.
2: That's where the yes. land was, yeah.
4: Yes. So that Thank was, you. But yeah, I no, do have a... one, one other question, though. You talked mm-hmm. about, and Bernice also talked about the value of the records, and everyone also shared how how to get the records, you know, BLM and things like that. But I think we've got a whole story just off of those records. And listening to, to both of you talk about the information that's within those records, I grew up on the weekends going from Grand Rapids up to these counties to those homesteads not realizing what it was, until about fifteen years ago, and I realized that I were on the family homestead. You know, we had to go up and help work on the farm. There was five of us kids, but I think those applications is what really gave me a sense of uh, I could see a vision. I can see the house. I can see my my Marshes planted a thousand strawberry plants. They built the house, front door, two windows, a barn. Da, da 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 da. So you're getting the image of what your ancestors had, and I think they're one of the you know one of the valuable records that people at least people of color might not be looking at. So I appreciate the information in the show, Bernice, because I think it's a wealth of information that we need to tap into and continue to tap into. So that was all I had to say. Yes, and I, you I know how much
1: I, d- I definitely agree with you, uh, Shelly. And those of you who have not read Tracing Their Steps, a memoir, that book is about a homesteader, Peter Clark, my ancestor. Uh, also, we have Angela saying that her best ancestors were homesteaders in southwest Arkansas. So as we begin to, you know, just talk about homesteaders, I'm hoping that more yeah. people will come forward. Tell your story. Let's hear about it. Let's, hear, and You know, everyone did not go into the sharecropping center. People were able to homestead land. And so tell everybody, please, uh, Jacob, how they can get yep. in touch with you and learn more about the project.
2: My uh, email is on your site, and that's freefeld.unl.edu. Um, it's on the page. Uh, the project, uh, the link to the project page is on your site as well. On that page, if you go to the, um, through that link, you'll see the African American Homesteader Project listed there. If you click on that image above the project, it'll take you to a form where you can actually tell your family's story right in that form if you want or you can email me if you prefer that. If you want to reach out to our Facebook page, um, it's the UNL Center for Great Plains Studies. That's another way if you don't want to email or get on the form, but um, those are the best ways to contact me, a direct email or or the form on our our page. But if you want to email me, still check out the page and read more about the project. Um, But yeah, definitely get in contact with me. I'm excited to, to hear your story and to help, to help tell it as well.
1: And we have another question before we <laughs> close mm-hmm. out. What is your hope? What are you looking for as far as the outcome of this project?
2: Uh, well, I, I'm really hoping that we can preserve this history. So sure, this is an important story, that I mean, and it unites two powerful American narratives. Homesteaders claiming land in the West and Black Americans' quest for equality and justice in the republic. Um, it unites those two stories, and it's an all-too-forgotten story. So I want, I want this to be a story when you say Black homesteaders. I don't want people to say, oh, well, I didn't realize there were Black homesteaders. I want to say, oh, yeah, I know about Deerfield. I know about Nicodemus. I want it to be part of that narrative we tell of the American West. And so we need to, to get the, the history of these communities out to the National Park Service so it's available to the public. We need to get these markers up. We need to preserve Deerfield and let people know that Deerfield is in trouble and it's one of the few sites that actually has buildings left. And uh, we need to celebrate Nicodemus. Uh, They're having their um, Emancipation Day, uh, the day it's now called Homecoming Celebration. Uh, It's the 141st Homecoming Celebration at the end of this July. They invite people from all around to come. You should check out Nicodemus. Um, They have a website for their homecoming celebration should definitely go out there, check it out. Um, It's good food, everything. But I, I I want this to be part of the national narrative. We tell, I think it's an important history.
1: And, and I certainly agree. Now, I just want to just mention, because the caller from Alberta mentioned John Ware and uh, actually there's a wiki, uh, whole description of john ware african-american cowboy and so and his picture and he's there with two little girls and and i would assume his wife and so those of you who are interested in learning more about john ware go to the wiki and you you'll see him you'll actually see a picture of him and so for everyone else i want to just thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this important show tonight, this is my last broadcast, and I want to thank all of you, all of the great experts that have come on this show in the last eight years, and you've shared your expertise. Remember, everybody, I do have archive shows. You can download these shows and listen to them forever, but I want to just thank you everyone and i want to thank you jacob for coming on tonight and sharing with us this very important and exciting project about the black homesteaders of the great plains and i want everyone else to remember all of everyone uh, your ancestors left footprints therefore you should follow the the messages that they're sharing with you through oral history family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Good night, everyone. It has just been a wonderful ride. Thank you so much. Good night.